0: got a Bible with you, you might like to open it up or open it up on your app. I will be uh, going a little bit back beforehand and having a look at the context. Uh, we are in John's Gospel, John chapter 13. Our Bible reading this morning comes from John 13, uh, verses 31 through to 35. The setting is that this is that upper room. This is the what we call Maundy Thursday. This is the night that Jesus is arrested in John's Gospel. He spends quite a bit of time. Uh, telling us about what Jesus taught his disciples in this upper room. He's going to wash his disciples' feet. He's going to give them this this new commandment uh, that we know. So John chapter 13, verses 31 through to 35 says this. Now when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Powerful stuff. Let's pray. Loving Lord, we submit this moment to you, and we pray that you might open our eyes to a fresh understanding of this passage, this familiar passage, this familiar teaching to many of us, Father. This teaching that rolls off our tongue for many of us, Father, we pray that you might give us a fresh insight, allow ourselves to be freshly challenged, challenged anew perhaps, as to how we might go about loving like Jesus has loved us. Father, we pray that my words might be your words, we pray that I might decrease, you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. And the people said, have you ever done something that you're deeply ashamed of? If you done something that you just wish I could turn back the hands of time, perhaps said something, you wish you just hit the rewind button and pull it back in. If you'd done something, that you replayed over and over in your mind, you think, if only I'd just done that a little bit differently. You might have said something or done something that caused tremendous harm or, or pain to those that you love, to those around you, or, or perhaps even to, to yourself. You've grieved yourself. You made a bad decision, and you just wish you could you could take it you take it all back. I know I, I certainly have. I'm sure you can too. Uh, I remember one instance as uh, as a young fella, still on my peas. Uh, I was coming back from a, a job interview, and uh, it was raining. It was it was wet. Uh, I would have been maybe 17 or 18, uh, just a young fella. And I was in the family car in the wet. And the family car when I was young, don't laugh, Jen, was a Toyota Tarago. You are familiar with a Toyota Tarago? Not the world's sportiest vehicle. Well, this young 17-year-old was treating it like it was a sports car. Let's just say it didn't end well. It was wet, it was raining. And I enjoyed hanging the back out just a little bit. And one corner coming home was sort of banked in. It was a really beautiful corner and I hit the accelerator just a little bit too it, just a little bit too hard. I was getting a little bit out of it, but it and I was—I don't know—I was had the music up loud. I don't know what was playing at the time, but I was being a goose, being a fool. I made a bad decision. I drove recklessly in the wet, and the tail went right out. And I tried to overcorrect. I'm madly trying to overcorrect, full opposite lock, and I'm still heading sideways in a Toyota Tarago. in a van. Well, the Tire's finally caught it, finally catch, and the thing just whipped straight around. Massive opposite lock again. I'm trying to overcorrect, but it was far too late. I was now heading in the wrong direction, and I hit the lip of the road and rolled the Tarago. By God's grace, I just climbed out. I wasn't hurt at all. Mum and Dad were not so impressed with the state of the Toyota Tarago at the time. I made a foolish decision as a young fella to drive recklessly in the rain. Incredibly embarrassing, by the way, to have all your neighbors and friends driving past to see the Tarago on its side. Uh, I wish I could have just taken it back. I made a really bad decision. I'm sure you can think of something in your life when something you just wish you could really do that, have your time all over again. That is the context of today's passage. A really bad decision has just been made. One of history's great all-time worst decisions has has just been made. If you didn't catch it at the start of the reading, it started off by saying when he had gone or when he had gone out. If you maybe you caught the reading in the first run through, just there. Maybe you even caught it. Wondered, hang on for a Pete. When who had just gone out? It's always always important to be looking at our passages in, in context. And so it's important to know the context of this famous teaching of Jesus about a new commandment. Well, when who had just left and who had just gone out? Well, it was Judas Iscariot. Judas has just left. He had just gone out to betray Jesus. He's just slipped out into the night. And he's agreed for 30 pieces of silver. By the way, as a little aside here for you history buffs, 30 pieces of silver was the price that a slave owner would be paid if their slave was was killed or was injured. So if you had an animal that, that gored somebody else's slave, 30 pieces of silver was the price you'd have to pay to reimburse the owner of that slave. So think about that as we think about Jesus' command here this morning. He'd slipped out into the night and was about to turn Jesus over to the authorities. He must have been in turmoil pulling himself this way and the other. He'd realize that things are really starting to get serious now. Remember, this is the point in time which Jesus has ridden triumphantly into Jerusalem. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. We already know that the authorities are trying to kill him. And so you can imagine Judas being torn each way, going, what shall I do? I really I want to get on board this Jesus train. But the authorities have got it in for him, and things really start to be reaching their crescendo and finally he makes his decision and he, he pulls the pin and the deed is done. One of history's greatest betrayal is about to take place. By the way, this isn't the only betrayal, of course, that Jesus suffers that night. Peter, a few hours later, the disciple Peter would also go on to deny that he even knew Jesus. In fact, he did this three times over. Such was the the level of betrayal that Jesus suffered that day. We do know that Peter was instantly remorseful. We do so get, a, get a picture of Peter walking the streets of Jerusalem, uh, think tears streaming down his face, instantly realizing, what have I done? Instantly berating himself for his cowardice and for his failure. But in terms of Judas, well... It doesn't really get much airtime down throughout history. It's been all too easy to paint Judas as the villain, isn't it? Oh, Judas, the guy who betrayed Jesus, and we don't really think any more about it. But we do, in fact, know that Judas also was terribly, terribly cut up and torn up about his decision that he had made. We know that he regretted his actions because we know that he tried to give the money back. He tried to reverse his decision by, by giving back the blood money that he'd, he'd received. We don't know how long he sort of stumbled around in the darkness, tormenting himself, but we do know that he too was, ended up being regretful of his actions. And in fact, he tragically went out and, and hung himself. So I think we need to keep this image of Judas in our mind. I want you to keep this context in your mind as we consider this famous new commandment from Jesus, right? He's just been betrayed by one of his closest allies. He's gone out to to, to betray him to the authorities when Jesus makes this this famous teaching. I think it casts Jesus' commandment to love each other in a terrible new light for people like you and I. The first thing that Jesus says here in our passage, if you have a look, uh, once Judas is gone, in verse 31, uh, Jesus says, uh, now, the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. So, what is all this glory about? What's all this about? Well, it could, of course, just be saying, Jesus saying, The end is near, my time has come. But again, it is helpful to have a little bit of context about how John puts together his gospel about the language that he uses. Because you see, John quite often uses these juxtapositions in his gospel. John is the the last of the gospels to be written, and and he uses some quite sort of poetic language, very powerful language uh, does John, and he uses these sort of ironic juxtapositions to drive home a point. He's been highlighting Jesus saying that he's going to be lifted up in glory Jesus himself is saying, I'm going to be lifted up in, in glory, which, of course, prior to the crucifixion, everyone thought, well, lifted up like a king on a throne, lifted up in glory. Of course that meant having worldly adulation. Of course that meant being high up on a throne, being lifted up, being exalted, having sung, song, sung songs sung about you, having people fall at your feet, being high and exalted, being glorious. But, of course, John here takes this image of being lifted up and he turns it on its head. Now, 2,000 years later, when we hear Jesus say being lifted up in glory, we now know that it means being lifted up on a cross. Jesus was lifted up in glory in crucifixion, in execution. Terrible shame and embarrassment and torture. This was Jesus being lifted up in glory. It's an ironic juxtaposition. John is telling us that the, God, the glory of God won't be seen in some coming, conquering king, some mighty warrior, but by a pathetic man strung up on a cross, high on a cross and left to die. There's a theologian by the name of James Allison who suggests that it might be easier if we sort of think of glory here as his, as his reputation. Jesus is talking about his reputation. So it would read something like, now the son of man's reputation, the son of man is Jesus' own reputation, title for himself. He described himself as the son of man. The son of man's reputation is made. My reputation is about to be made. God's reputation is about to be made in me. So, you know, my reputation, what I'm about to be known for is about to be made and God's reputation will thus be known through me. So what is it about this moment, this particular moment in this upper room? It's going to cement Jesus' reputation and thereby God's. Well, to answer that, of course, we read on and we read that that, that wonderful command. Jesus continues. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. If you have love for one another, then everyone will recognize that you are my disciples. Can you hear the reputation theme coming through here when you read it like that? Can you see here that the context of Jesus' reputation being made in this critical moment? If you get a reputation for loving one another, he's saying, then people will recognize that you, that you must be my disciples. And in turn, Jesus' reputation for being incredibly loving reflects on God being a God of, of love, a God who loves no matter what. So why is it this moment that Jesus' reputation is about to be made. Well, it's at this point that Jesus had a real choice, didn't he? Judas has just slipped out to betray him, and and Jesus has a real real choice to make. In worldly terms, he can either save his skin and continue continue his ministry, or he can submit himself to the course of history that Judas has just set off. Remember, he's at the height of his... Worldly popularity and power at this point. Earlier he'd been welcomed as the coming king to Jerusalem. What we remember as Palm Sunday, Hosanna, they welcomed Jesus as a king. The whole of Jerusalem went out to meet him. So at this point you get the sense Jesus could have really teed off quite a revolution. He really could have caused a real headache for the Jewish authorities and indeed the Romans at this point. Many people were in fact expecting that that was what he would do. And at this point, he's in a room with, with his closest buddies, at least we can only assume 11 loyal other blokes beside him. Why this is important is because John makes it very clear that Jesus knew what Judas was about to do. Think about that. Jesus knows what's going on in Judas's mind. He knows what he's slipping out to do. He's got 11 other loyal men beside him. He could easily have called Judas out and had him beaten up or killed and continued on with his merry revolution, with his his ministry. But after this event here, his fate, at least in earthly terms, is is sealed. Once he's under arrest by the Romans, his fate is, is sealed. Of course, he could have called down legions of angels to smite his enemies, but... He chose not to do that either. He submitted to the course of action that Judas has has set himself on. So here Jesus has a choice to make. He can either save his skin by by fighting or fleeing or, praise God, he can make the decision to really radically love. To love even those who were just left to betray him, to betray him to death. Even those that were hell-bent on destroying him. Jesus' love and mercy for all people, even his betrayers, is unshakable. Isn't that good news? That his love for us is unshakable. He continues this sort of amazing, amazingly gracious love right to the very end as they're driving nails into his flesh. What is he saying? Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Whether it's Peter denying that he even knew this fella, or Judas receiving his 30 pieces of silver to betray him, or the Roman soldiers hammering nails into his flesh, Jesus never stops loving. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that amazing? Take a moment, just think about what Jesus is saying here. In that context, love one another as I have loved you. And it's by this that the whole world will know that you're my disciples. I don't know about you, but I reckon that's a pretty tall order. I reckon that's that's pretty hard to do. I reckon this really highlights what a radical thing it is to call yourself a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. If this is what we are called to do, to love even those who would betray you. But what about Judas? What comes of, what comes of him? And how would Jesus have treated Judas if he ever had the chance to meet him? It didn't work out. Unlike Peter, by the way, if you know your Bible, you'll know that subsequent to the resurrection, Jesus had a chance to reinstate Peter around a fish breakfast. Jesus mercifully, graciously says, gives Peter an opportunity to repent and to declare his love for Jesus three times over, the same way that he had denied him earlier. But for Judas, that wasn't the case because he took his own life. But I reckon, I reckon that Jesus' heart would have been breaking for Judas for that empty seat when the disciples would gather after the resurrection. I actually don't think that unlike the church for the or basically all of Western society for the last 2,000 years, having Judas as basically as a a byword for a betrayer, for an evil person, I don't think that would have been Jesus' attitude. He washed his feet. He washed, his, he washed Judas's feet. Such is Jesus' love for Judas, his own betrayer. This is radical stuff, isn't it, Maria? It's hard to live out. I reckon Jesus would have forgiven Judas had he have had the chance. i have got to tell you there have been a few people over the years that have left churches that I've been a part of, churches that I've, I've led and have done so To be honest, in less than gracious circumstances, in circumstances that are less than full of integrity, and it's been hard to to reach out and to love that person. I've really, if I'm honest with you, thought I've been doing pretty good not to call them out on their unloving behavior. But nevertheless, Jesus calls us to love as he has just loved us, washing the disciples' feet, even those that would... Betray him. So the question, I think, for us this morning, the challenge for us this morning is is fairly clear, isn't it? How are we going to go and do likewise? The question for us is, how are we known? Are we known as Jesus' disciples by our love for each other? When people think of you, what do they think of? What are the descriptors that they would use? Are you known? Do you have a reputation for being a loving person? Are you known as that Jesus person, that Jesus follower, the the Jesus freak they might even call you, the God-botherer I called one time in one of my workplaces? Oh, He's a bit of a, you a God-botherer. They should have the reputation. People should know this about you. This is the challenge for us, and it is, a, it is quite the challenge. So ask yourself, what are you known for? And what is our church family, church in the marketplace, what, let's challenge ourselves, what, what are we, what are we known for? We should be famous for our love for each other. We should be known by our love for each other. Remember, love is a, is a verb we get taught in primary school that love, that, uh, a verb is an action word, it's a doing word. Well, love is a doing word. Love is, is made known in what we do, what we say. It only is love if it's lived out, if it's embodied somehow. So can I challenge you this week, how are you going to love? Can I challenge you this week? Let's put, let's put a number. Can I encourage you this week, challenge us all this week to reach out in love, three times to a member of your church family. It's hard to love even if you don't even know each other. You can do more than that. Don's modeling it for you. I didn't plan this, but he's actually got love written on his lapel. Thank you, brother. Make sure you put it into action this week though, all right? Whatever it is, brother, I love that you're modeling love. Let's make sure we put it into action. It's not just a label that we actually embody it, that we live it out. Let's get to know our, our fellow church members and Put skin on our love. Embody it. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. And I'll be honest with you, church. I don't actually think we can do it unless we first submit ourselves and lay hold to God's love for us. This is too hard. Loving like Jesus has loved us is a difficult call. In fact, I think it's well nigh on impossible without some sort of supernatural power. We, followers of Jesus, we're human like everybody else. Every day I've got to get up and put to death the self, put to death the Pete Chapman that rises up in me, that sets my agenda for the day, that's going to bring glory to me, or even just bring pleasure to me, bring comfort to me in whatever way I see fit, and say, no, no, I'm not going to head down a path that's all about Pete Chapman. I'm going to, Heavenly Father, help me to bring glory to you today. I'm going to help me to love those that you've called me to love, you're going to need to submit your life to God. Yes, mate? Yeah, God is love, yeah. Well, I think really if we're fallen beings, we're trying to do our best to get to this level, but I think, I don't know about you, I mean, I I struggle with this stuff, you know? I struggle with loving like Jesus has loved me, you know? Yeah, love is universally known. We all want to be loved. So I think all human beings have eternity in their hearts. So the punters out in the street, we all want to be loved. I suppose from a Christian perspective, we're never going to struggle. You know what I mean. We're all going to struggle. We're all going to struggle to live up to this this standard that Jesus has, has set for us. So can I challenge you? to make sure that you submit your life to Jesus Christ and say, here I am, Lord, I'm I'm surrendering. I'm giving my life over to you. I'm saying, Lord, I'm not going to be able to do it in my own strength. Come and take charge of, of my life. Here I am. It comes from him, doesn't it, Maria? That's right.: Yeah. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, that's right. What I'm saying is we need his power to do it, don't we? We're not going to be able to do it in our own strength. Stop trying Christian. Stop trying to do it in your own strength. It's going to be too hard. And frankly, I'm sick and tired of trying to crank the church's handle to get you all just to do stuff for the sake of doing stuff and simply running programs for the sake of running programs. Our first love should be for God and then as a result, we love because he first loved us, yes? So this week, let's love like Jesus has loved us. Let's commit ourselves to reaching out three times and a little service of love might just be a phone call. It could be as simple as a text message, encouraging someone for something. A little act of love can be so powerful. Let's make sure we are known as his followers, as his disciples this week week, by our love for each other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Loving Lord, this is a tall order. This is a difficult task and we can only do it in your strength, Lord to love like Jesus has loved us, even those that would betray us. Help us every day to wake up and be like Jesus, to love like Jesus, Father. Send your Holy Spirit to equip us, to empower us, to do just that. Even those that are unlovable, even those who drive us up the wall, even those for whom we don't have a lot in common with, perhaps even those perhaps that make us angry or sad, help us to love like Jesus, to reach out, to forgive in gracious love, in a love that is unending, in a love that is unswerving. Help us to love like Jesus has loved us this week, In Jesus' name, the people said, amen.